Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. My guest today has been described by BBC Music Magazine as the most successful and well-known composer of choral music in recent British history. John Rutter has composed music that seems to have helped define an age, including for the Queen's Golden Jubilee and the wedding of the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. Described by the New York Times as the composer who owns Christmas, John has inspired millions around the world with a consummate craftsmanship with the Evening Standard said leaves him with few peers. It's a story of making music for life's moments and narrating the tales of our time with invention, creativity and flair. John, welcome to Changemakers. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on, on the show. I wondered if I could kick off with a quote that um, I read from not not from a, a, a musical inspiration but from the World Economic Forum which said um, last year that um, with constraints on our movements and general way of life becoming more and more restricted music provides a means to regain control is that something you would identify with in terms of the role of music in our lives and, and perhaps the role of music right now during a global pandemic I think it helps you to regain your soul and reclaim your identity and get in touch with who you really are as a human being. Because normally the people that we bounce off in our everyday life when we get out and about and meet lots of people, um, that's all gone. And in a way, music communicates mysteriously, but in some of the same ways that human interaction communicates And I think actually there has been huge solace from music during this past very difficult year. I've heard this from all kinds of people. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's that's right. I was thinking about it, actually. I I I was listening to some music preparing for this interview. I went on a walk today and I was thinking about, well, so much about music is about the imagination. It's about what it unlocks in in your mind in these very, very difficult days. And and I, I feel that perhaps we are reappreciating our relationship with a lot of creative parts of our lives of which of course music is a is a great exemplar i mean does that mean you've got a a new role as well as a composer that you have to be a kind of inspirer and a creator as well well of course your work is done with the music that you've already written and it may be that it finds new audiences I have continued to compose during the past year because truthfully the lockdown hasn't made a lot of difference to me composers work in isolation anyway we're used to it so I think I was probably better prepared for the experience than the great majority of my fellow human beings it hasn't bothered me I've missed the conducting because I'm a conductor as well as composer and the thing about conducting is that it's social you're getting together with your colleagues and that for me is very very important I haven't got the willpower to want to be alone in my study writing music for 365 days a year I couldn't do that it's just too important to me to somehow meet with other musicians in the flesh and uh, so that part of my normal activity has it's temporarily gone but I have been asked to send messages of support to quite a number of performing groups and that's that's been been quite a fun thing to do of course I started as an only child spending quite a lot of time on my own And I was never lonely because in my parents' flat in London, where I was born and grew up, there was a piano. 
And that became my constant companion. When I was no more than about four or five years old, I would just doodle away for hours and hours. And in a way, that's what I'm still doing, except I get paid for it. But that, that was how I began. I, it was just me and the piano. And we had a lovely relationship. It was a real battered old thing, out of tune, um, not cared for, but it was loved because I rediscovered it. Neither of my parents played. Um, It was just a legacy from the previous occupants who'd left it behind in the flat. And um, uh, me and my piano, um, we were were buddies. You know, we really were. Let's come back to me and my piano, because I I feel, apart from that, because it sounds like a great musical, it it sort of is also um, part of your journey that I'd like to come back to. But just before we do, the, I think, you know, you, you talked about two aspects of your life as composer and conductor. And I suppose they also speak to some of the more, I guess, introverted and extroverted parts of life in terms of the ability to work um, alone and the ability to work together. In terms of the conductor side, the, the, the bit that um, you obviously haven't had the chance to do as much during lockdown, although I've, I've seen, obviously, you have done some things. Um, Do you think the social aspects of the live music experience, I mean, a lot of people feel that we're really losing out on that kind of community, that sense of of common experience that is so integral to um, the live music tradition. Um, And that's the real cost of, I guess, some of the cultural casualties of, of, of coronavirus. Well, yes, um, of course we miss being together with our colleagues and there have been virtual choirs formed where you don't physically meet but you record your contribution in your own bedroom and it's then married and mixed together with all of the other contributions of people who are in this virtual choir and then it makes one total recording. And that's a very good replacement for actually being all in the same room and playing or singing together, but it's not the same, and we all know that. Do you get a sense that there is a a circular energy between musicians and their audiences in terms of that live music experience where it's not just your colleagues, it's actually everything about it in terms of the shared experience in 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 life i mean is that is that part of the magic do you think oh yes 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 there's a two-way energy flow because you the performers give something to the audience and they give something back to you in terms of their applause their attention the appreciation that they give you in return for your offering to them. And that is a wonderful feeling. I know very few musicians who prefer making recordings to giving live concerts. Glenn Gould, the great pianist, was an exception because he said he really didn't want to perform in a concert hall again and he concentrated on recordings. But everybody remembers him because it was so unusual and extraordinary. And normally we all love live concerts for all the stress, for all the under-rehearsal you sometimes have to put up with, for all the possible interruptions from um, road drills outside or aeroplanes overhead, all of that. Nonetheless, you are there with an audience and it's a shared experience performing in a recording studio um, 
it's kind of sterile for many musicians. You're just um, really offering your music to a red light. And that just is not the same. Of course, a fair amount of recording has been going on during this past year with social distancing. And at least you get the appreciation when your recording is issued, perhaps many months later. But um, you don't get the buzz of being Mm -hmm. there. At the same time. And, and it's interesting because I, inter- I interviewed um, Ben Cunningham, who is the chair of the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, and he said that he said musicians are, are like dragon chasers. I thought it was a wonderful, evocative idea. He said that, you know, you're constantly chasing the high and the excitement of that live music experience because that is part of the, the synergy and part of the relationship between the musician and, and their audience, which I guess we're all looking forward to getting back to. Oh, we are. And the thing is that you're also contemplating um, whether you're a member of the orchestra, the choir, or whether you're in the audience, you are contemplating a miracle because the muscular, the oral, the the coordination of every aspect, um, where your fingers are on your instrument at that microsecond, have to be just the same, coordinated with 80 other people, perhaps more if it's a big work like a Mahler symphony. And you absolutely cannot explain how everybody gets so good at it. There's a kind of telepathy that's at work. And as conductor, um, I just stand in awe and wonder at how something flows between all of those people. The old analogy of a well-oiled machine, well, that sounds inhuman, and of course an orchestra or a choir are deeply human, but they nonetheless all fit together. And it was at one time beloved of car manufacturers to have adverts showing an orchestra in action because they were trying to make the point that all the parts of an engine um, work together in exactly the same highly coordinated way. I still don't know how players in particular manage to master their instruments while listening to everybody else, while looking at the conductor, and while thinking about where the next page turn comes and you know where they have to be very careful because it's a difficult bit. And they all do it without batting an eyelid. Um, uh, people sometimes say musicians look a bit grim when they're performing, but it's not grimness. It really isn't. It's just concentration. Uh, intense concentration. Because, yeah. I, I mean, when you put it like that, when you put all the constituent pieces together and then you deconstruct it, I mean, there is... That, that That is why I think when you say that music is a soulful experience is that there is something magical about that ability, that creative ability of people to come together that way, which is, I suppose, brings some meaning when you say that they always say that you don't choose music as a way of life. It chooses you. So let's go back to um, me and my piano, because obviously those early days, um, something happened. A lot of people do have um, parents or relatives, I guess, that sort of act as a pathway. But for you, this seems a quite an extraordinary situation where you found your own way or, or, or certainly it found its own way to you. How, how would you pick up the story from there, John? Well, only that coming from a not very musical home, which I did, meant that I missed out on some things. I rather envy those of my colleagues who, for example, had a string quartet in the home. and They could make their own chamber music without going outside the family. And that must be rather lovely. But 
It also means that your parents probably hold out expectations for you. And because my parents really didn't know anything about the profession of music or what was involved in learning it, um, they wisely kept quiet about it and were just encouraging and supportive. So I found my own way, but it was thanks really to the schools I attended um, where uh, there happened to be a strong tradition of music and singing in particular at my secondary school was a big thing. And we had a good school orchestra too. Um, but um, the idea of being a composer was not thought to be weird or strange. And indeed, if you had a violin case and you walked in past the playground, you would not get beaten up. Um, there was quite a strong musical ethos at, at my school. I was very, very lucky. But I do um, understand from reading your story that there was a fork in the road and we could be interviewing Professor John Rutter, the academic, uh, that that was a, a potential career path for you. But obviously there was a, was there a seminal moment? I say obviously, was there a moment where you actually met somebody that, that got the ability that you had and said, this might be the road for you, John? Well, you know, um, certainly I was encouraged into music by my wonderful director of music, Edward Chapman at school, who was quite a composer himself, but chose the path of teaching. And I think he perhaps thought that's where I would end up. He did say, um, go to Cambridge because of King's College Choir, um, which, of course, is world-renowned. I mean, there are other terrific choirs there as well. And he said, that's where I think you will actually grow and be nurtured. And I had an encouraging composition tutor at Cambridge. I took to composition partly because I'm no good at playing. Um, I, I struggled with the piano and the organ, and I just got a distinction in grade eight on the organ, which enabled me to apply to a university because they like you to have, it's the top grade of the associated board exams that, that young people go in for. And so it achieved its purpose, but I knew I would never be any good. Um, on the other hand, I noticed that some of my very musically gifted friends were scared of composing. And they all know I couldn't do that. You know, oh dear, blank sheet of paper. And the thing is, I suppose I'm just as scared. I still am. But I kind of thought, well, I'm going to take the plunge. I was fortunate to be at school, fortunate and unfortunate, um, to be at school with the late Sir John Tavener, uh, who was one of my best buddies there. And he was clearly marked out for fame and fortune as a composer. We didn't think about the future terribly much, uh, but he knew that he was going to compose and there was nothing else for it. And because I think his gift was much more obvious than mine, and he was also a fine pianist, our headmaster, who took a slightly jaundiced view of music as a career, he thought it was dodgy and insecure and precarious and cruel and all that's true. Uh, but uh, he said, well, you, you could be an academic. And uh, the thing is, if I had actually become an academic, I would now be retired with not enough to do, probably embittered about the direction that higher education has taken. And I'd uh, really not be having a terribly good time at all. Um, instead of which, I plunged into the world of composition. Well, that, well, that was the sliding doors moment. So let's talk about John the composer, because I suppose when, you know, obviously your career, John, speaks for itself. I mean, hugely distinguished. Um, but for people that are 
I sat there and thinking, well, you know, composing is some higher creative art form. It's, it's, I suppose inside the mind of a composer, when you start with that blank sheet of paper, I mean, how does that creative process, you know, what, do, do you look for sparks? I mean, I, I read that you described yourself as a musical magpie in your style. I'm just wondering how that creative process energizes itself and what are the sparks and ideas that, that might inspire you? Well, it's mysterious. Uh, the one question every composer is asked is, where do you get your ideas from? And it's the one question we can't ever answer. Mm. I just know that when I was five or six years old and doodling away at that piano in my parents' flat, that I always preferred making up my own little tunes rather than playing pieces that someone else had written, that I would improvise. And it was some time before I learned how to read music and could write down what I'd invented. But I somehow preferred that process of invention to the process of recreation. Mm -hmm. And that remains today. But yet, if you were to ask me, uh, this very morning, I wrote the final couple of pages of a piece that's been promised for some time to the choir of York Minster um, for a big event they've got coming up when they can meet again. I haven't the faintest idea where the ideas came from. <laughs> you know, and it was, it was, I had a bad day two days ago and I had really nothing much I could use by the end of the day when I closed the lid and, and packed up and, and made dinner. Um, but yesterday I had a better day and we don't know. The thing is, we're trying to turn on a tap, but we can't quite reach it. Well, I've got, I've got a couple of questions that immediately spring from that. But I, I interviewed um, Terry Waite very recently, and he spoke about that he was writing books in his head when he was in prison. You know, he was, he was held against a wall for 23 hours and 50 minutes of most days. And his mind was alive to the extent that he was actually writing chapters of a book in, in his mind. It was coming alive. And I wonder, does, does the music come alive in terms of your sense of what what the kind of end result will sound like what the experience will be like I mean is that is it that vivid or is it a more technical creation when when you when you're actually composing well it starts with a foggy vision and uh, I liken it uh, I live in the Fens in Cambridgeshire where it's often misty and it's flat and the experience I always say is an analogy for how it works, is driving towards Ely Cathedral, which is a mighty, wonderful building from the Middle Ages. And as you approach on the A142, at first you just see um, a misty outline and you get a little closer and then you start to see, ah, oh, that's the cathedral. You get closer and you begin to see the stonework. And finally, you can see the detail of the carvings and the entrances and the windows, and you you have it. Um, generally, I think the creative process starts that way with some vague idea in your mind. And of course, if you're writing for a particular occasion, you may be given an idea. Like for the royal wedding, I knew I had to write a five and a half minute piece with the text from the Psalms. Well, that kind of gets you halfway to the cathedral. If you, uh, that, that's, that's actually a very useful start. Um, but it begins vague. 
And uh, you don't actually start composing from bar one and then work your way through to the end. That you try to devise a structure a little bit like the steel frame of a building, which once it's clothed with brick and concrete or whatever, you can no longer see that framework. But if it wasn't there, the building would collapse. So structure has to be part of your thinking. And that's where what you said about technique comes in, because you start with just a little seed, a little germ, but um, you have to stretch it out in time. Um, the composer, I think it was Hindemith, who said that composition is a little bit like seeing a nighttime landscape suddenly lit up by a flash of lightning, and then the lightning goes away, and you're in darkness once more. But you have that memory of that instantaneous flash. And uh, you see, that's fine for a sculptor or for a painter, because those art forms don't exist in time. Music exists in time. And so something I always used to say to my composition students is think of it like a ball of chewing gum that you have to stretch right out, um, that you start just with that ball of chewing gum and you stretch it out for as long as it needs to be. And one of the things you have to decide is what time framework is appropriate. Should this be a five-minute piece, a 15-minute piece, um, a, a one-and-a-half-hour piece, um, that you don't always know what you've got. I mean, sometimes you're told what length it has to be and what resources you're writing for, but often you have to spend time getting to know your own ideas because they come from somewhere. I always like to say they come from St. Cecilia, the patron saint of musicians, who flies by and sprinkles a bit of fairy dust on you if you're lucky. If, if you're lucky. Now, let's talk about that, because you, you're, I mean, well, I'm, I'm sure your career has not been lucky because you've, you've done so much uh, that, that has captured so many people's imaginations. But I'm interested in terms of your process of, of, of composing to the degree to which the mood of the moment affects how your processes change. I mean, how has living through a pandemic or has living through a pandemic changed anything? To what degree do you think you'll look back on, say, this period and say, that was the music I composed during the pandemic because it had this type of personality or this type of energy? I mean, is, is it situationally aware, do you think, or does it transcend the mood of the moment? The latter. Uh, I think music runs along its own tram lines and that biographers who try to say, well, Mozart was going through a very sad period in his life, so he wrote terribly sad music. It absolutely is not like that, that music has its own character and you can be feeling exhausted physically and yet you may write a piece that's just bubbling with life. Or conversely, you may be terrifically happy and just fail to come up with anything that you would want to hear. So um, I've given up trying to make life work parallels. And of course, one of the things people often misguidedly think is that 
um, oh, um, that's such a lovely piece. You know, it made me cry. It's so soft-hearted. It's so beautiful. I'm sure the composer must be a lovely person. And uh, sadly, it's not true. Um, uh, you'll get exquisite music by Wagner, for example, and he was horrible. Um, you know, he really was. He treated all his fellow human beings as servants or menials or just people to be discarded and used. He was unappreciative. He was awful um, on just about every human level. And yet um, sublime music flowed from his pen. And uh, so this is the other, it's, it's, in a way, this was the central conundrum of Peter Schaffer's play Amadeus. How is it that Salieri, who was a good guy, um, hardworking, paid his dues, never came up with anything that the world wanted to remember musically? And Mozart, who was an irritating little upstart, just came up time after time with divinely inspired, wonderful music. There's no answer. I don't think lockdown has affected my work. It may have affected some other composers. The only thing I would say, um, only half seriously, is that I have written rather more solo literature. <laughs> Inevitably, um, solo music is not affected because you can play a guitar suite in the privacy of your own home. Um, you can't do a concerto on your own. Now, I've I've got a couple of things before we run out of, of time on the interview, but but obviously, I think when you think John Rutter, you think, well, a lot of people will think Christmas. I mean, the New York Times described you um, as the composer who owns Christmas. Is is that a is that something you're comfortable with, um, or, or because obviously your work is so much more versatile than that, and we've we've already spoken about your work elsewhere, um, you know. It, are you are you happy with the reputation that you have built over the years with these very very clear um, issues of identity? Well, I'm more comfortable with it than I used to be, and after all, I would prefer to be associated with a time of happiness and joy rather than with plague, pestilence, and famine, um, for example. Um, but um, I certainly did go through a period of being quite resentful that I was associated in many people's minds just with the music of Christmas, because of course I'm active for the other 11 months of the year. But um, I came round to thinking, well, it's better to be known for some of what you have done rather than for none of what you've done. And I think that the little carols I've written are rather like visiting cards. You know, they're a way of making people's acquaintance and hopefully winning friends. And if they choose to find out more about me and my work, then that's great. But um, I do still sincerely enjoy Christmas, the festivity, the music, the message, the magic of that season of the year. And uh, I, I'm sure I will continue to write the occasional carol as and when I'm asked to or when I feel the mood strikes me. Well, what a lovely way of describing it. I love the idea of the calling card. Um, now, you left us with um, our lockdown list, which accompanies this episode, to... Two wonderful, um, one quote, one tip, two wonderful ideas. Um, your tip for life was try, to not, uh, try not to waste time, but if you do, waste it enjoyably. Um, and your quote for life was from an anonymous source, which said, try to leave something good behind you. A word on, on both of those um, advice pieces. Well, as time goes by, you realise that um, your time is running out. 
that it seems like the clock's going to run on forever when you're just 18. But when you get to my age, and I never discuss ages, but I am younger than the President of the United States, um, you realise that you may not... A mere whippersnapper. (laughs) (laughs) You realise you haven't got so much of it left. And so you may as well make um, good use of it if you possibly can. Uh, I I suppose that's what that's about. But uh, we all do need something to unwind with because music is very intense and takes up all of your concentration. And composition in particular is quite tiring, um, or I find it so. And I'm sure performing to a high level is tiring also, even though it's exhilarating. So um, we need something else in our lives. I've got, um, well, country walks near where I live, um, helping my wife cook dinner from time to time, which I enjoy and uh, being a recording producer, which is a a different kind of skill. Um, Still involves music, but it's not actually involved in creating. So there's that. And then as for leaving something good behind you, well, that's just obvious that I would rather be remembered kindly and fondly than bitterly. And we can't always choose because sometimes uh, people judge you harshly for this or that that you may have done or unkind things that you've said you can't rewind the tape of course Um, but that's why in a way um, it's not a bad idea to consider with every step that you take is this something I may regret in future years and I think I've got better at trying to avoid doing things that will be hurtful or saying things that will be hurtful. Uh, I was awful when I was young. My friends from those years will remember that I was tactless, I was arrogant, I was often quite rude, Um, never meant to hurt anybody. But um, if I lie awake at night over anything, that's usually what it's over. The wrongs that I have perhaps unintentionally done different people and should not have Um, but well all you can do is say I'll try not to do it next time leave something good behind you a good memory a good remembrance oh thank you so much for such a special interview thank you very much to John Rutter the composer and conductor with that boundless creativity and drive that I think was so so well stated here today join me next time on Changemakers